to Los Altos Institute's 13-episode course, Latin America, Laboratory of Capitalism. I'm Stuart Parker. I'm the instructor. This is a recording of our 13-episode online course. Uh, we hope you enjoy this as a uh, tool for uh, education and provocation. Uh, most of this course has been about the ways in which Americans have acted in Latin America in a way that has been both unprecedented and contagious within the capitalist order. That uh, the U.S. has invented something in Latin America, tested it out there, and that thing has either succeeded or spread. So um, you guys hear me okay? Okay. Um, and that is most of the narrative of Latin America and the United States leading up to the 21st century, uh, when I think we can see a very clear historical break with the past. Um, and uh, one that's intensified over time. I want to, I'm going to get to that. Uh, but first, I want to cover off um, I guess while we're still in the 20th century, I want to begin addressing the theme of American decline by talking about probably the last major 20th century innovation we see being tested out in Latin America in terms of the operation of capitalism. And that comes out of an executive order during the last continuous term of the Institutional Revolutionary Party of Mexico. So PRI had effectively ruled Mexico since uh, Plutarco Calles. They had initially, because they were leaders of a liberation struggle, enjoyed huge shares of the popular vote as a legacy of that. Something that's very common with independence struggles, right? That the African National Congress or ZANU-PF, or uh, SWAPO in Namibia, a movement associated with a country's liberation uh, often enjoys a huge plurality or a flat out majority of support for at least a generation after that experience of liberation. And certainly the Mexican revolution in which all the land and all the oil were taken back from the United States produced that kind of effect for PRI. However, over time, PRI became more mainstream, it lost some of its revolutionary energy, and other political competitors began to appear. And so, beginning in the um, mid-1960s, PRI began rigging elections. And there was a major confrontation at the 1968 Olympics, Many dissidents were killed by the government in an attempt to prevent them from ruining the 68 Olympics. And um, it uh, and uh, thenceforth, PRI went into a pretty typical tailspin that that kind of party goes into, um, where it's increasingly reliant on the institutional power it has a monopoly on to hold on to governance as it loses any kind of popular legitimacy. So the last of the contigu contiguous PRI presidents um, is, uh, oh dear me, uh, Salinas, Carlos Salinas, 
uh, elected in the mid-1980s. And Salinas um, sees the writing on the wall. He sees what's going on in Argentina and other parts of Latin America as the Cold War cools down. And like uh, most parties in power at that time, he seeks to curry favor with this new neoliberal global order with America at the head of it. And he does so in a fascinating way. He does not look north to the United States for the economic reforms that are going to make PRI a party of neoliberalism and a party that will enjoy international support. He looks to what should have been the most unlikely place. He looks to China and China's groundbreaking special economic zone legislation in the Pearl River Delta. The um, uh, Deng Xiaoping's deregulation of the economy in Guangzhou, Macau, Hong Kong. Well, he doesn't control Hong Kong yet, but this whole Pearl River region um, at the mouth of the river. And in doing so, Deng creates the industrial city Shenzhen, uh, the, which uh, my, my friend Matt lives in today and which is now larger than any of the historical cities in the Pearl River Basin. It was created in 1984 by Deng and is now larger than communities that have been there for a thousand years. Migrants brought there by the deregulation of the economy. And uh, yeah, well, that's fascinating, um, Hamish, about the 68 Olympics. Uh, my uncle was uh, placed eighth for Canada in the 100 meters at that Olympics um, and uh, uh, became controversial there because he endorsed the gold medal, uh, the gold medalists, uh, they are the finalists in the race, the two Americans uh, raising the Black Power salute when they received their medals. Oh, that, so, that's the one yes. where they, yeah. oh, okay, I, I did know about that detail. Yeah, but no, there were outside of the uh, Olympic Village and the games, um, uh, university students were being mowed down with machine guns. Oh, for fuck's sake, I did not know that. Wow. So um, anyway, back to the horrors of Deng's China. Uh, so 1984, um, Deng does this radical deregulation where now the most neoliberal economy on earth more so than inside any Western state is the Pearl River Delta in the 80s. Um, and this does exactly what Deng predicts. Uh, money flows in, investment flows in, technology flows in, uh, money flows into China. And um, uh, this is considered to be Deng's greatest innovation. I think it is best commemorated in a, uh, a photo that last time I sent my friend Ross there, he couldn't find at one of the more bizarre things I like to visit in Salt Lake City, the Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum. So um, the, uh, uh, so uh, Colonel Sanders was not an actual uh, it does not surprise me. I've had their gravy, RT. It does not surprise me at all. You would have been food poisoned there. It is perhaps the worst of all of the various terribly bad KFC gravy. Although I'm sure that Prince George 
KFC makes worse gravy, uh, just axiomatically, because it's the, it has the worst restaurant of every chain in the world. It was the gravy, haha. So anyway, this, um, so the Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum, um, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken's a strange story, right? In many ways, I think you could tell the life story of Colonel Harlan Sanders and really tell the story of the 20th century. And he was a colonel, but that was not a military rank. In the state of Kentucky, the governor has the power to by fiat make anyone he wishes a Kentucky colonel. And the what happens if you become a Kentucky colonel? Nothing at all. You're just a Kentucky colonel, that's it. Um, so uh, um, Harlan Sanders was just a crazy man who figured out a particular way to fry chicken out of doors. And he had a fried chicken stand in the um, parking lot of a gas station and um, had patented his pressure fried chicken recipe, but it took um, the, uh, oh, I didn't know they got special benefits of the Kentucky Derby, good to know. Anyway, it took a, uh, a uh, Mormon guy and his kids uh, being on holiday in rural Kentucky to discover Harlan Sanders buy his intellectual property and create Kentucky Fried Chicken with the Colonel as its mascot. Although the Colonel was retired as its mascot, um, follow, um, following the 1968 um, presidential election intermittently, um, Colonel Sanders had become a lightning rod for, um, had made the chain a lightning rod for boycott campaigns uh, in the civil rights era because Sanders was one of two finalists to be George, uh, George Wallace's running mate in his 1968 third party bid to implement racial segregation nationally in the United States. And it had been between uh, Curtis LeMay, the guy who ordered the bombing of Nagasaki and Colonel Sanders as to who would be the VP on the ticket. Ultimately, uh, Curtis LeMay won out, uh, but the Colonel's extended public court courtship with George Wallace did hurt the chain. And so sometimes um, KFC, when I was growing up, would be kitchen fried instead of Kentucky fried if things got a little too hot for the Colonel. Anyway, of course, the great redemption of the Colonel as a public figure commemorated it photo photographically, but mysteriously taken down during Ross's last visit to the museum is a scene of the Colonel, the Mormon dude who owned KFC and Deng Xiaoping standing in Tiananmen Square, all each simultaneously biting into a KFC drumstick. Um, so that, that, that's really like, that crystallizes the, the moment there, right? In 1984, he, invites Kentucky Fried Chicken, the first fast food chain to be admitted to China. Um, he invites them into Tiananmen Square and he creates this special economic zone of regional deregulation uh, sustained by migration from the rest of the country. Uh, and it's this legislation on which Carlos Salinas explicitly models is in he publicly states that this is the model for his maquiadora legislation uh, that is uh, brought in by presidential decree in 1989, creating special economic zones throughout Northern Mexico 
uh, largely identical to the Pearl River special economic zones. Um, this produces major job growth in this region because um, American corporations come in to have light industrial work there done, often assembly line work, uh, so they don't have to build big steel furnaces in the Maquiadoro Belt. It's the putting the stuff together work that gets done in the Maquiadoro Belt, along with textile work and the like. And uh, because uh, Mexican wages are one sixth American wages, um, if Mexico otherwise equals America, major assembly line work moves into the Maquiadoro Belt, and indeed it does. It does not save Salinas or his party. They're promptly thrown out by not sellouts, but authentic neoliberal capitalists in the form of PAN. And it's the new party PAN that, base, that is able to use the Maquiadoras as a bargaining chip in negotiating its way into the Canada-US free trade agreement in the form of NAFTA. The idea is that because Mexico has unilaterally created the special economic zones, the US is bleeding jobs into Mexico and getting nothing for it. So why not make a deal with Mexico to in some way structure reciprocally who is getting what for what, rather than just have this maquiadora belt become an increasingly controversial thing. This is of course a big issue within American political parties. There is an, an attempt by industrial unions to, um, uh, to advocate for punitive duties and the like to shut the Maquiadora belt down rather than incorporate it into a larger system of hemispheric free trade, which of course, as we all know, then leads to uh, the um, expansion of the Rust Belt. But the Rust Belt starts expanding um, due to these interactions with Mexico, not in 1994 when NAFTA is signed, but five years earlier when Salinas creates the zones. And so it's really striking here, while it is true that NAFTA is an example of American hegemony, it's an example of American imperialism, it is also true that Mexico probably gets more out of it because it imports a way of revolutionizing capitalist production from China. So even though America still, America agrees to be the dominant power, get a good deal in NAFTA and not fight with Mexico, um, you know, what's the other option to fight Mexico over its adoption of Chinese capitalism? Um, you know, the US is a, is a country largely, the Democrats are taken over by neoliberals, the Republicans already are neoliberals, why would America do that? And that's a, that essentially becomes a fait accompli with Bill Clinton winning the presidential nomination. That, uh, but even though in some ways, NAFTA is used as an example of the beginning of Pax Americana, the 20 years of America's absolute uncontested hegemonic power over the world, it also foreshadows uh, the decline of that power and to whom and what that power will decline to. Another feature of this is the amendment. Uh, so what uh, America does get 
the cons the primary concession America does get is that in um, uh, 1922, the Mexican Constitution prohibited foreign land ownership, and uh, Americans lost all their land in Mexico. And so uh, America's bottom line for Mexico entering NAFTA is yes, they would allow the maquilladoras, but in exchange, Mexico would amend its constitution and permit foreign land ownership and land privatization. Uh, this spawned a movement I'm planning to teach about later this summer, uh, the second Zapatista movement the Mayan separatist anti-NAFTA guerrilla army that still controls significant portions of the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, it's of course part of a longer term Mayan insurgency against the Mayan incorporation into Mexico that really began in uh, the 1840s and has just had a variety of eruptions in a variety of different forms. What was interesting about the Zapatista that normally these Mayan separatist movements are very inward looking. Um, Emiliano Zapata, after whom the movement was named, the Mexican revolutionary who um, uh, invaded uh, Mexico City with um, thousands of machete wielding Mayan peasants in, uh, the, in, the, uh, in the teens. Um, Zapata is, um, if you look at film depictions of him, et cetera, it's his lack of cosmopolitan, his lack of an outward view that's supposed to be his tragic flaw in uh, uh, Viva Zapata and other performances. In many ways, the character of Subcomandante Marcos, the leader of the, Zapati the new Zapatista movement in the 90s, is styled almost intentionally or probably intentionally as the opposite. So Subcomandante Marcos uh, usually appears masked and it is not clear, this is another interesting feature of Mayan uprisings, it's not clear that it's always the same guy, right? The single most successful Mayan insurgency was commanded by a talking cross. That the, the fight between the talking cross and Mexico went on for 50 years. And the Talking Cross was without a doubt the most strategically effective commander Mayans have had since uh, in modern history. It won far more battles with far fewer resources than Emiliano Zapata. Uh, so um, there is a certain, because what the Mayan people are doing is what, what land reform in Mexico gave them was the right to tell everybody else to fuck off and them do their own thing and keep running the Yucatan the way the Yucatan is run with slash and burn maize agriculture and small villages and um, a, a strong uh, high level of esteem for the Virgin Mary. And, um, you know, and they like the, they like, they, it's important that they have there are two stores in every Zapatista controlled town, the men's store and the women's store. They're big fans of separate sphere ideas. And they believe that, you know, the, the Mayans are, the Maya are an elect people for the same reason most, most people think that. They, they have a sense that they are the only true Christians in the world. Uh, this, um, you know, it, it upsets a lot of people. We think that we're upset about cultural appropriation going one way, but we're actually upset the other way. 
were actually upset that Mayan people feel as entitled as we do to see God in their own image. And so we use pejorative terms like syncretism, or we refer to people as sellouts or whatever, because really they're arguing they have an equal, they have a, they have as good a claim on defining Christianity as any other nation of converts. And um, that was always edited out of the stories about the Zapatista movement in the 90s. They were usually depicted as neo-traditionalists, which they're not. Um, they're, uh, you know, they, 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 they like an earlier version of Roman Catholicism than the current one, but they're very committed Catholics. That's central to the whole deal. Anyway, um, Subcomandante Marcos always had a laptop with him. He always found some sort of weird landline with a modem. There was a modem built into the laptop. This is right at the beginnings of the internet, 1994, 95, 96. Right in 95, when Art Vandenberg made our website, the Green Party of BC was the first party in British Columbia to have its own website. The party in government didn't have a website. Uh, so this is how, so Sucomandante Marcos is this charismatic figure because it's this anonymous person who may be several people behind this mask who reaches the furthest corners of the world with technology. And one of the things the Zapatistas do is they bring, um, I encountered the internet pretty early. I, my friend Steve got the first UUCP feed from Usenet that didn't go to a university to come into Vancouver in 89. So I was sort of following that stuff. But the thing was that there were other tiny groups of tech savvy people in strange places. And the Zapatistas came to disseminate that news. And it's really out of this that we see the the movement that is called the anti-globalization movement that will ultimately that I think we can see a genealogy from here to Occupy and then the collapse of Occupy really being the end of that iteration. But in some ways, Occupy is already discontinuous with this movement. The anti this anti-globalization movement runs basically from 1994 to about 2004. Uh, and <clears throat> it, um, it is global. And the model of Subcomandante Marcos um, I think changes, um, causes a lot of social movements to throw a lot of eggs into the basket of the internet as like a thing that's going to move things forward. So once again, we're seeing this innovation coming out of Mexico. It's the anti-globalization movement. This is anti-American hegemony. It's anti-imperialism. And so again, we can see that there's all this intellectual dynamism still in, um, in the Latin American periphery, but it's not being fueled by the United States. In many ways, it's being fueled in opposition to the United States. So um, now the land privatization naturally reduces land productivity, uh, land ownership concentrates, et cetera, et cetera. Mexico's economy certainly grows. Um, the experience of most people uh, of living in that economy is not particularly positive. The Maquiadora belt uses um, 
basically brings back into Mexico many of the features of the Bracero system that had been used to exploit Mexican labor in the 20th century. So people are housed in barracks, they have to shop at a company store. It's very easy for the companies to suck whatever small wages they do pay these employees back into themselves. And so um, we see more money going through the hands of Mexican people. We don't see it really staying in their hands at this point. Now, now I've got to get on to the foreign policy split of the 21st century. Uh, the United States Constitution is designed to require very, very high levels of elite consensus in order for the national state to run. The United States was really a divided nation. It was an agreement. It was um, a merger between two different kinds of societies uh, based on being geographically proximate and sharing strategic resources and strategic interests. Um, there was a free labor-based, um, not pluralistic, but democratic uh, society in the North based on private land holding. And there was a um, plantation society in the South that was not based on free labor, um, where most people did not own land and um, which uh, did not have democratic institutions to speak of and uh, was suspicious of those institutions emerging. So like many of these agreements, present day Italy, Egypt, I mean, Egypt has been working on this for 6,000 years. They don't seem to have made any progress uh, since unification under King Menes. Um, Italy, similarly, right? The regionality gets worse. Um, you know, the fact that the, that, <laughs> The leading part of the governing coalition of Italy for more than a generation has been a Northern Italy separatist party, um, should be indicative of that. Uh, really, Canadians are not fucking this up nearly as badly as we think we are. So, and of course that isn't an equal partnership. We simply conquered uh, uh, another nation that sits inside us. Well, at least one, shall we say. Uh, so this requirement for a high level of elite consensus is also a requirement for a high level of geographically distributed elite consensus. And the system is designed to lock because in the original design, the feeling was, look, if the federal government can't decide to do something, then the states will just all go their own way. That's what will happen when the system locks. In order to win the American Civil War, various workarounds were created, but these workarounds are unstable. They're not, uh, and they still required very high levels of consensus to function. The only way the workarounds worked was when the US decided that most people living in the Southern half of it couldn't vote. Um, and they just changed the group of non-voters enough that uh, they could affect this temporary civil war coalition by disenfranchising the Southern veterans or removing the Southern states entirely and turning them into war occupation zones with no constitutional standing. Anyway, uh, the 20th century was characterized following the Great Depression. 
um, by an actual elite consensus that once the United States found itself as on top, literally on top of the world under Harry Truman, um, we see this period where the two major parties undertake all kinds of major initiatives working together um, with high levels of accord between the elites in those parties and high levels of accord regionally um, so that even the process of doing the second reconstruction in the South involved a lot of the elite of the South being bought off to tolerate it, to not actively obstruct it. Um, and often the way it was bought off was, or persuaded was through foreign policy imperatives. That meant on the one hand that um, there would be things that people in the South would go, well, I'm not gonna stop you doing that because that affects our ability to run the world. So we're not gonna stop you doing that. And the flip side of that is a disproportionate amount of the money spent dominating the rest of the world was pushed through the South. That's why the space program runs out of Florida. That's why all kinds of programs ran out of the Southeastern portion of the country in order to maintain that level of consensus. Uh, for reasons that can't really detain us now, that consensus began to collapse in the age of neoliberalism. Uh, that really starting in 1994 with the election of Newt Gingrich as Speaker of the House, a very different thing began to happen. Uh, and so during the Clinton presidency, the country largely proceeded with initiatives on which the two major elites could still agree. But those initiatives were increasingly foreign policy initiatives the domestic policy initiatives of the two elites were insufficiently similar uh, for anything to happen unless, except in situations where Clinton absolutely capitulated to the Republican party because the Democrats had been taken over by people who shared their views on certain issues like the need to end welfare and the need to create a massive for-profit prison system nationally to take the Southern prison system and nationalize it. So these were things that the Clinton regime was able to proceed with. Nevertheless, um, the Republican party base was increasingly unhappy with even the small number of compromises that were being made. And following the Al Gore, George W. Bush election, which was so hotly contested, and in which there was so little sense that the other side would agree to or consent to the result, um, we see that the old foreign policy consensus that had been in effect since Truman collapses very rapidly because George W. Bush is interested in military adventurism in Asia. Uh, he's interested in uh, working with oil elites that his family is close to in seizing uh, petroleum resources in the Middle East that have gradually fallen out of American hands. Uh, the Bush family um, really is 
uh, is a harbinger of what's to come, what's so beautifully dramatized in season two of Succession when the conservative and liberal elite families try to have dinner with each other. They have nothing to talk about because they haven't gone to the same schools like every previous generation. They don't have the same manners like every previous generation. And if there is a version one of that, it is the transformation of the Bush dynasty. That we go from Prescott Bush, the patrician Yankee, president of the Sierra Club and founder of Planned Parenthood, don't worry, they weren't the good guys then either. They were a eugenics organization, just like they are again. And uh, uh, via George H.W. Bush, who changed his accent in the 70s. And although we see all these cosmetic changes with the Bushes trying to look like Texans and look less patrician, um, the real story is that the kids that... Um, uh, you know, the Bushes are uh, dealing with are the kids, are the children of the global oil elite. The Bushes are already a family that was at odds with America because it made more money when OPEC was putting the squeeze on America because more of its oil and more of its friends were outside America. And so the, uh, and so the Bush uh, lineage is you know, I wish I could have, I wish they had done like all the weird notables at George H.W. Bush's funeral because there are these guys, right? These um, CIA asset oil entrepreneurs, these guys like Adnan Khashoggi, who were just showing up all the time that had become part of America's intelligence apparatus when uh, Bush was, uh, Bush Sr. was um, Gerald Ford's CIA director. And uh, that whole crew uh, came into power. They had, uh, and so the really, it's not just that um, the Bush dynasty's friends and um, familial associates and business partners pointed away from Yankee America. They pointed away from America. Uh, they were not pointing at Oklahoma oil men. They were pointing at Saudi oil men. And uh, it's in this context uh, that we need to understand this dramatic break for which there's very little blowback, shockingly little blowback. I think, um, and uh, the reasons for that are peculiar, but what it means is that really from the moment he takes hold of the presidency, even before 9-11, even before the invasion of Iraq, Bush begins pulling intelligence and military resources out of Latin America in order to deploy them in the Middle East. And it's really the NSA that he draws down first, the National Security Agency. There's a huge shift of labor into Asia. And Bush can in some ways justify it. It's like, we are not a regional power, we are a global power. Um, we need to flex our muscles um, in the Middle East. We need to flex our muscles outside of our sphere of influence. Of course, at the time, we didn't have the same fracking and other really upsetting oil technologies. So there was also a bit of a squeeze. We hadn't figured out all the things we could do to squeeze more petroleum out of the United States and Canada. So there was also the sense that there wasn't really enough oil to go around. 
And given that America was a huge net oil importer at that time, we had better get to the best oil the fastest. Um, there was a lot of upset about the transfer of British and American oil wells to France uh, in the 90s by Saddam Hussein. That was one of the most significant grievances and one of the reasons that the French immediately opted out of the Iraq war, but secondly, were so specifically targeted by the Bush administration as examples of treachery and cowardice, because what they really were was examples of theft. They should have turned down those British and American oil wells instead of taking them if they were really honorable people. So while all this is going on, um, you know, the, the people running the Bush administration are not necessarily that clever. Like, and so they lose Venezuela. They, uh, like, Hugo Chavez is already taking power, and uh, they, um, they just completely, um, they just completely fuck the dog on Venezuela. Uh, the uh, Chavez becomes the president officially in 2002, and if, and people like John McCain are like, what the hell are you doing? This man should be in a pool of blood on the, on the floor of the assembly tomorrow. Um, and that's, if, if Al Gore had won the election, Hugo Chavez wouldn't have lived out 2003. Uh, but the old foreign policy establishment found that it had absolutely no sway with Bush. And that Bush is like, no, we're gonna have so much oil, we don't need to worry about the single largest oil producer in our hemisphere at the core of the Monroe Doctrine system. And so um, the US prosecutes its wars in the Middle East and they get rather unpopular and even more distracted. And the great known unknowns, unknown knowns speech is, uh, is made by, by Donald Rumsfeld sort of conceding that they had no idea what the hell they were doing. And, um, and Nancy Pelosi comes in as speaker during the 2006 midterms. The Republicans are absolutely shellacked even in states you can't imagine them losing today, like Louisiana. Uh, they're just annihilated. Uh, and so they appear to be losing this war in Iraq. They, um, uh, it, uh, all the wheels are falling off. Bush's dad tries to show up and perform a palace coup. That's really embarrassing. Bush's dad shows up, uh, fires a bunch of people. His son shows up, hires them back. It's total chaos. And during that chaos, Evo Morales becomes the president of Bolivia. Uh, and the third largest petroleum producer in the Western Hemisphere falls. Um, and not even to a hostile foreign power. It's not even a Russian vassal. Um, the, this crew, Morales, um, uh, Morales, Chavez, Ortega, and Castro, who are their big allies in the Eastern Hemisphere? The governments of Iran and Qatar. Uh, and Syria. And the only thing this alliance of seven countries has in common is the desire to do what the Ukrainian uh, conflict has just finally done, 
destroy the petrodollar, destroy the uh, US dollar as a reserve currency. That team fails to do it. But the fact that largely without any additional foreign help, the United States manages to lose control of Venezuela and Bolivia in the space of six years is fairly shocking by the standards of the old establishment. Um, and that's why it's of course important to make an example of the first Latin American country that can be found when um, the old foreign policy establishment retakes power under Barack Obama, uh, represented in this case by Obama's Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. So um, meanwhile in Honduras, as I said before, the Honduran situation is very similar to the Chilean situation. It's a situation you have under Allende, where there's a bicameral system the president from one Israel represents one side of the political spectrum and the assembly represents the other. And there's almost nothing that can be agreed upon. Um, so in 2008, to break the deadlock, uh, President Zelaya calls a referendum to form a constituent assembly. John Kerry, then the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, publicly begs George W. Bush to do something to stop this referendum. And Bush does nothing. Uh, um, and so uh, uh, the constitutional crisis continues in Honduras. The Supreme Court rules that, it, that, the, that Zelaya's referendum is illegal. Zelaya says that he does, he's not bound by the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is part of what the referendum is about. And so there's this deadlock between the assembly and the Supreme Court on one side and Zelaya on the other. Uh, the Supreme Court are of course representing the country's oligarchy. Uh, this constitutional crisis proceeds and Zelaya is able to control enough of the bureaucratic administration of the government to schedule a referendum for March 29th, 2009. Uh, now, there are many parts of the government that aren't cooperating with him, like the part of the government that prints things. So the ballots for the referendum are printed in Venezuela uh, by Hugo Chavez's regime. And um, a vote is set for the referendum, June 28th, 2009, um, and on June 28, 2009, the ballots are seized at the airport by the Honduran military. Zelaya is seized in the presidential palace by the Honduran military and put on a plane to El Salvador and the referendum is canceled. Um, arbitrary detentions and extrajudicial killings begin. Uh, these continue for many years. One of uh, the most shocking conference presentations I ever attended was, um, uh, at, uh, it was crazy. It was uh, one of the worst organized conferences I've ever been to. They basically had more presenters than they had people in attendance. <clears throat> it, um, so I'm at this university that's the UBC, it's the Kelowna Satellite Campus, the University of British Columbia. I go into this room and there's like a guy who's like streaming in on Skype from Honduras 
And there's just like a bunch of us there. None of his fellow panelists show up. Like there are only three of us. Um, no, no, I guess there are five of us because there are two people we don't know. And then the other three of us actually had only gone to the conference as an excuse to go on a wine tasting trip through the Okanagan. So, uh, and this guy is like, I think they're going to kill me. Here are the things that are going on in Honduras right now. And uh, ultimately it appears that he was killed, that like we were among the last people he talked to. So um, there is a period uh, from 2009 to 2013 of abductions, extrajudicial killings, arbitrary detentions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, from July 1st to November 28th, the US objects diplomatically to what's happening. Um, but this WikiLeaks later exposes is not really the case. Parts of the United States government that are operating automatically object because there's been a unanimous resolution of the UN General Assembly for Zelaya's reinstatement. Um, the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee thinks Zelaya should probably be reinstated. This coup looks really old and greasy and unseemly. It looks like the Guatemalan coup of 53. Like, do we really want to look like that, guys? Uh, the Congressional Research Service produces an official position for the US government that gets out before Hillary Clinton can stop it, stating that the coup is illegal. And then from, um, and then from July 1st to November 28th, Hillary Clinton systematically brings the foreign policy bureaucracy to heel to get them to support the coup. Uh, and uh, so that um, the US changes its official position uh, by December, stating that um, it has no objection. And in fact, it now objects to any possible reinstatement of Celia. Uh, Clinton directly contacts uh, the, uh, um, uh, the coup leaders in uh, Honduras and lets them know that she will be personally working with them to ensure that in the next election, Zelaya cannot possibly win, either because he's been disqualified or disappears or whatever. And uh, yes, it's a good point, RT, that uh, there has been a longstanding enmity between the CIA and NSA, that they've never played that well together. That the CIA has often been the ridiculous cowboys being a far smaller organization that, um, was designed by a KGB agent. So uh, it was designed to stymie the, MS, the NSA as well. So that's, uh, that's also significant. Um, anyway, uh, in this new Honduras, uh, Clinton's people have a vision. We are going to get back to innovating in Latin America, innovating in capitalism. We are going to be back in the driver's seat here. Deng Xiaoping won't be, be setting the agenda now. We'll be setting the agenda. And so they create. Uh, so um, Porfirio Lobo uh, becomes enamored. He's the Zelaya's successor, becomes um, enamored of the work of radical conservative urbanist Paul Romer. And Paul Romer is, um, uh, I think you might understand, he's 
one of those far right people where some people characterize him as a libertarian, some as an authoritarian. So I'll just describe um, his vision. He believes that uh, what we need is a new kind of neoliberal capitalist urbanism called the charter city. Uh, we might think of the charter schools movement when uh, we start thinking about where charter cities might go. The idea of charter cities is that city, cities as they presently exist are too democratic, they are overplanned, and at the same time, uh, so they're overregulated and yet uh, relatively lawless. Governments and cities try to do too much and fail at doing too many of the things they try to. And governments and cities are irresponsible. So cities should become corporations. And citizenship in the cities should be contractual. So the idea is you join a city by signing a contract with that cities uh, in the form of the corporation, the for-profit corporation that owns the city. That contract includes um, that you now must comply with the city's laws. The city's laws supersede the laws of Honduras. So no laws in Honduras, so charter cities are effectively legally outside of Honduras. They are zones of the physical country uh, where no Honduran law applies except by the consent of the charter city. Uh, another belief of Romer's is that uh, people are far too concerned about stopping sprawl. What you want is an expansive grid system that is highly permissive of sprawl so that you don't use planners to rein businesses in that way. But what you do need is a downtown core that is earthquake proof, storm proof. So Romer believes in heavy investment in making sure that the infrastructure at the core of the city, the energy, water and roads are of very high quality. Uh, and then everything else can build out from there. And if some of it washes away, that's fine. The center of the city is um, basically okay. Again, Romer gives specific credit to Deng Xiaoping for the idea of the autonomous uh, city. Uh, and um, so markets can plan most things according to Rome. We just need infrastructure investment and political independence. A feature of charter cities, flat tax. There is a single poll tax you pay per year. There's, um, they, had, they had one rate for Honduran citizens, one rate for non-Honduran citizens. Uh, and um, the pre-agreed signed contracts with the corporation that owns the city, those contracts contain things like drug laws, um, criminal law, things like that. It's all contained in your contract. I'm not allowed to rape anybody, sign on the dotted line. Um, these ch uh, charter cities also allow you to be an e-citizen. And that means you can register your business so that it's domiciled inside a charter city. And uh, you just paid taxes to that charter city and not to any country. Uh, the model for um, uh, Prospera, uh, one of the uh, charter cities they uh, sought to create, um, you'd have um, 
Health and education would be purchased essentially through insurance schemes, the way health already is in the United States, and you'd do something similar with education. Uh, and then the, um, if additional laws needed to be made, the system would be that um, there would be, they would be made by five elected city councilors and um, uh, who would form a bare majority on the city council of nine, the other four being um, directors of the corporation. So you'd need basically unanimous agreement of the elected people to stop the company doing whatever it wanted. Uh, so um, this, um, this was enabled by something called uh, it's, uh, the ZEDE, the Economic Development and Employment Zone Edict. And it was in effect in um, Honduras from 2010 to 2022. They began building three charter cities um, six were originally approved. Um, three were basically shut down through large-scale dis civil disobedience and democratic organizing in the regions they were in. And so it's the ones that were in the most remote regions, especially Prospera, which is on an island, uh, where they got the furthest. So um, they, uh, but none of the charter cities, because they were being built whole cloth in the middle of nowhere, none of the charter cities got to the point where um, there was significant settlement and migration before Zelaya's wife won the presidential election and in 2022 shut down all of the charter cities. So um this is another example of here we go it's like this should have worked americans were always trying shit like this in the 20th century and you know this had all of the ingredients of the banana republic system or the open door or the nicaraguan national guard except that it has failed it has failed before our eyes this year the charter cities are closed and have reverted to normal land tenure and so um, this is, uh, uh, I, I've generally observed that um, Latin America is always at its freest and most prosperous when the United States is unable to pay attention to it. We saw that um, in the latter stages of the First World War when the Mexican Revolution took place. We saw that in the Second World War with um, the, the Great Depression and Second World War with ISI and industrialization all through the Southern Cone. And, um, and we saw it again under the Bush administration uh, that um, America took its eye off the ball and Latin America was suddenly free. Um, there, you would have to be insane to ever root for the American empire if you lived in Latin America. I understand why Canadians do, um, because, you know, usually we get, we, we go along for the ride. You know, we're, you know, like America's crankiest toady. We're, we're that annoying sidekick. But um, if you're from Latin America, anytime the United States pays attention to you, people die. It's, uh, and uh, so, you don't, one doesn't know how to feel about the collapsing empire, but from the standpoint of, I would say, where we're looking, um, oh yeah, 
Canada did great out of the American empire. Uh, it, we are by far the best treated of the, all of the vassal states. Um, we're like the, the East Germany of, of the whole scene. Uh, so um, it is really interesting though, that um, this, that America is supposed to be trying to pay attention the foreign policy establishment is all around Biden, right? John McCain's ghost is whispering in his ear, uh, carry all those people. And yet, this I would say is a different situation. Um, this isn't the neglect of a George W. Bush. This is like actual failure. This is the United States trying to pay attention and get the job done. And we already had, uh, under Trump, of course, two major failures where the foreign policy establishment want, uh, had an opportunity to, uh, replace, uh, to replace Maduro in Venezuela and largely failed because Trump and his crew were not interested. And um, in Bolivia, the US did pull off a coup with Elon Musk cheering it on and um, but Trump was in office, he didn't really care that much about the coup. He wasn't gonna put a bunch of resources into it. And uh, within a year, uh, the people were able to reestablish democratic control of Bolivia. So the neglect of Trump, um, it's understandable. The neglect of Bush, it's understandable. But the Biden administration paying attention and having all the charter cities collapse, that should be a concern when it comes to America's competence and when it comes to the question of who is gonna be driving history in Latin America after this 200 years of America as this dominant coercive narrator. Anyway, questions, comments? I guess I'm a little, um, I wouldn't mind hearing a bit more about the concept of cha charter cities. It's the first time I've heard the term, so my of Googling here isn't telling me much. Yeah, it's an idea that was developed. I mean, this uh, Paul Romer has been around for an age. Uh, no one took him seriously until um, uh, the um, until uh, Hillary Clinton's crew put him together with the crew in Honduras. So it's an idea that's been floating around in, um, I think the idea first showed up in the Orange County Republican Party in the late 60s during the sort of first intellectual renaissance of the American right in the 20th century, uh, the, the post-Goldwater-Goldwater movement. And um, so this goes to the core of a lot of the ideology of a group like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, where, right, the problem with this, the city is that um, it's the state is dominant rather than the market. How can you make a city that's controlled by the market rather than the state? Well, you make it a for-profit corporation. Uh, and then supposedly it should be in the city's interest to make itself richer. So it will pursue policies that will generate wealth. Um, and so you want a local voting system where you need a massive consensus of local voters to stop the corporation from doing what it wants. But also you can see like there's some of this stuff has gone crazy, right? You, you notice the 
the first people who started protesting masks in uh, British Columbia were the free men on the land. Um, the, it's, a, it's a particular kind of pan-Anglo libertarian primitivism. So normally, the problem is that America has such a different legal history and such a different cultural history than the United, uh, the United Kingdom and Canada and Australia and New Zealand when it comes to how the law works, how citizenship works, things like that. Um, the Freeman on the land movement tries to trace all of that back to Magna Carta. And so to, to make these different Anglo legal systems converge. And so their idea is that all people are free and solitary. It's, it's, it's the Hobbesian state of nature, right? You're, you drop out of the womb, into the woods, you're by yourself, everybody has a club and we're hitting each other to get yams and running around because society doesn't exist. There's no such thing as families. Families aren't natural. The individual is natural. And so from that premise, they go, well, so in order to enter society, you have to make a contract. And until you make that voluntary contract, you're not part of society at all. Um, and so then the question is, on what terms do I enter society? So that's the, the same sort of spirit that animates the free men on the land, animates the charter city movement. The charter city movement is basically taking that kind of anarcho-libertarian um, contract worship and um, figuring out how it could make money. Uh, you know, because many forms of market fundamentalism are actually hostile to the making of money. Uh, and so uh, this, um, anyway, so that, that's sort of the spirit of it, that um, here we're gonna actually have a formal system where if you haven't signed a contract saying that certain laws apply to you, they don't. Uh, and that's the basis on which they could argue, um, that's the basis on which they could justify sucking these places out of Honduran jurisdiction entirely. But of course, the basis of sucking them out has nothing to do with the weird anarcho-libertarian theory. The basis is the direct observation of the Pearl River Delta and the Maquiadora Belt around Monterey. I, I'd like to add that it, it was interesting because I've never heard uh, of a special economic zone being referred to as a charter city. In fact, a lot of United States states have in their constitution the concept of a charter city that is more like just a normal municipality. Like uh, right. Tennessee, where I grew up, has three charter cities that have permission from the state government to exact their own taxes and set certain laws that do not supersede state laws. but um, so it was, it's an overloaded term, and I was a little bit confused when I first heard it, but interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I could see it, make, it would make sense also if you're trying to popularize an idea. You're basically saying, we're reducing this to its pure form. We're going to produce the first real charter cities. In fact, um, in Georgia, where I live, there was recently a scandal where the state tried to create three new charter cities, and the, the state constitution has like an enumerated list of like powers that charter cities can adopt for themselves, but it's supposed to be up to the city to decide, we want to take the right to operate a police force and do it. We're gonna charge the tax, we're gonna organize a department and it's supposed to be democratic, but the state legislature like 
dictated for these three cities that actually you're going to have these three powers that are enumerated and we're not going to let you pick. And it was a huge, like the government got sued by a bunch of constitutional lawyers, obviously, but luckily the measures were all voted down in the referendum, but um, yeah. Wow. Oh, well, um, that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's pretty relevant to, uh, to what we're dealing with. But yeah, this is, yeah, this is just taking a term and I could see, because we're not familiar with this term in Canada, I could see how this would be rhetorically effective as a stealthy rhetorical move. 